turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. When I was 19 years old, I was stationed in Homestead, Florida, in the Air Force, and many weekends I would go home, to the chagrin of my mom, who thought I was using their house as a hotel. Basically, I'd go home, hang out with my high school friends, party with them, and then go back to the base on Sunday night. I wasn't a Christian at this point. And so I remember sitting at the beach or standing at the beach at a party one night, holding a beer in one hand and looking out over the ocean and thinking there's got to be more to life than this. 19 years old. And basically what I was saying in one of my favorite books is Ecclesiastes. I didn't know that yet, but I was talking about Ecclesiastes. I was saying vanity, vanity, all is vanity striving after the wind and that's what i was doing i was trying to find happiness as as david would say david roundtree in all the wrong places good country song right and i was looking for it in everything and not finding it well how do you find spiritual fullness in an empty world and, you know, that's for non-Christians and Christians alike. How do you find spiritual fullness in an empty world? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at today as we start in John chapter 6. This is, this is the Word of God. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Now this is most likely about six months after what we talked about last week, after the healing of the paralytic. It's springtime. It's the Passover. It's also, we, there's evidence that it's springtime in verse 10 where it says there's an abundance of grass. Jesus and his disciples have gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, across from the town of Tiberias. This is the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which today is known as the Golan Heights. In fact, the Golan Heights was in the news last week. Um, the Iranians bombed the Golan Heights. And then Israel retaliated, as you heard in the news. Um, these are also the cliffs where Jesus cast the demons out of the man and cast them into the pigs. Remember that story? And then the pigs go over the cliff, committing Harry Carry into the Sea of Galilee. Most of the population, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, is an isolated place, and most of the population lived 
on the western side of the sea. The towns on the western side were Capernaum, Canaan, Nazareth, Tiberias, and Nain. On the side where Jesus was this day, it was a very isolated place. You know, there weren't many supermarkets around. There was just this grassy slope that was good for feeding sheep, but not good for feeding men and women and children. In verse 10 it says, there were 5,000 men at this event. Now this number didn't include women and children, so this crowd could have been as big as 20 to 30,000 people. Another interesting thing about this story is, this story is the only one that is repeated in every gospel. This is the only one. And when something's repeated by God four times, that means it's a pretty important story. Now verse 2 tells us that this large crowd was there for the wrong reason. You know, they were, they were attending this event because of curiosity. They came because of the signs which Jesus had been performing on those who were sick. And so, you know, the question is, why are you here this morning? Why are you here this morning? I, I know many times we can get into a rut. We can get into a habit where we do things out of ritual. You know, we come to church and we do it every week, and after a while, it's, it's just like Israel. You start going through the motions, and your motive isn't right. You know, it, it can be vain repetition, as, it's, as it talks about in the New Testament. Why does God want us here? What should be our motive? What should be our purpose? And the number one purpose is what? Worship, right? Is to worship God. Why? Because of the grace and the mercy that we've been given that we don't deserve. That's the main reason why we should be here. That's the only reason why we should be here. Look at verse 4. It says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So we see by this verse that the Passover was near. The crowd probably had in their mind going the wilderness wanderings. You know, you know at Christmas time, you know, what do we think about? We think about the manger scene. We think about the incarnation. We think about the uh, shepherds watching their flocks by night, the star of David, right? We think of all those things. Uh, and they were doing probably the same thing. It's Passover time. So they're thinking about the wilderness wanderings. Probably they were on their way, most of them were probably on their way to Jerusalem and going up the eastern side of the Jordan River. Why? To avoid Samaria. We talked about that in John 4, right? They didn't want to meet with the Samaritan people, so they went around Samaria, and then they crossed back over the Jordan River. So in their minds going is the wilderness wanderings. They're thinking about, they're thinking about Passover. They're thinking about being out in the wilderness during the daytime in the desert when it's 140 degrees. At nighttime, it's 32 degrees. Can you imagine that extreme difference? Almost 100 degrees. This is what the people faced 
in the wilderness. They had no food, no water. They were totally dependent upon God for their survival. Now these could have been some of the thoughts that were going through their minds as they listened to Jesus in this wilderness sermon. And they may have also been reminded of this when their stomachs started rumbling and they started to get hungry. Look at 4 through 10. Now, forget about the crowd for the moment, and let's look at the disciples. And let's see how Jesus tested them before this glorious miracle. Look at verse 4 through 10. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test them, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said to him, Have the people sit down, now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in a number of about 5,000. So Jesus asked his disciples, and specifically he asked Philip, where are they going to buy bread for this crowd? Now verse 6 reveals that this was a test. This was a test for the disciples. Would they be dependent upon him? For everything. In 2005, I finished my degree in biblical counseling, and I was so excited to be done with school. I, I had been in school for 22 years, and I was right tired of it. Okay, And one of the things I was the most excited about was no longer having any more term papers or thesis, or projects to do, but the most exciting thing of all was not to have any more tests or exams. I hated them, you know? Having to stay up all night, studying for them, cramming. Um, probably you high school students, you seniors are probably pretty psyched, at least for the summer, you're not going to have any more uh, Joel Wilkes exams, right? Sorry, Joel. But I was excited. No more exams. But guess what? Little did I know that God had other plans for me, and he has them for you also. Because here in verse 6, it says, Jesus tests his disciples. And in James 1, verse 2, we see that Jesus tests us throughout our lives. James 1-2 says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or tests, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Now, listen to what that says. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when encountering various trials. That means you can have various trials throughout your life. And guess what? I may be going through a trial 
in this church, and nobody else is going through that trial at that time. And you know what? That's pretty hard to consider it joy when you're going through a trial and you're looking around and you don't see anybody else going through the trial. You're tempted then to say, God, why me? Why only me? Right? But what God says is, consider it all joy. Why? Because it creates, it, it creates endurance in us. And then endurance produces maturity. And maturity brings glory to God. And our faith grows. And our faith is displayed to others. And, and one way that my wife, Denise, displays her faith to me is she'll say something to me every time we're going through a trial. We'll kind of joke around about it, um, which is a good way to do it. She'll joke around and she'll say, um, she'll say, and she'll do it in a New York accent. She doesn't have a New York accent, but she'll do it in a New York accent, and I can't do it well. But she'll say, can anybody shorten the arm of the Lord? Okay? And she'll say that to me. And, and I'll think, no. Nobody can shorten the arm of the Lord. And no situation in my life can shorten the arm of the Lord. And she'll also say, pray about it, and God will knock your socks off. She does that all the time to me, and it's great encouragement. Great encouragement to me. You know what? Those disciples that day needed somebody like Denise to come up to them and say, can anybody shorten the arm of the Lord? Right? But they didn't hear that. So Jesus asked Philip, where are you going to buy bread for all these people? Now, now let, me, let me help you with the size of this crowd. How many have been to celebrate Anderson? I hope we see every hand. Okay. We've been almost every year since we've been here. We've been here 20 years now. Um, and when they have a good group like the Beach Boys, the whole field is filled with people. And I, I think that can be probably around 5,000 people. Think about that. 5,000 people. Now multiply that by six, and you get 30,000 people. Think of that field. Think of that filled with 5,000 people. Multiply that by six. You've got 30,000 people standing in front of you, right? Think about how much food that is to provide for that crowd. Think about water. Think about all the stuff that goes into planning for that. So Jesus is standing there with Philip, and he looks at him and says, points to this crowd in front of him and says, how are you going to feed them? Well, what would you say? You know, Philip's probably a bean counter. He's a numbers guy. So he's thinking uh, denarii is a laborer's, you know, a work for a day for a laborer. So 200 denarii. Now, maybe they had 200 denarii on them. I don't think so, but maybe they did. And he's thinking, we have 200 denarii. That ain't going to do anything for this crowd. I mean, they might get a wee tad. A wee tad, right? So, so then... Andrew pipes in, hey, there's a kid over here with five loaves, and it's poor people's loaves, okay? It's, it's barley, which is, I guess, the lowest of the low of bread, and then it's two fish. 
And he says, but what's that to this crowd? What's that to this crowd? God had given these guys a problem so big, too big for them, and their faith was too small. And actually, the way they viewed God was too small. One of the biggest problems that I remember my mom ever telling me that she faced was telling me about how when my brother was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. That was devastating to her. And it, was be, it would be devastating to any parent to hear. Your, your dreams for your child are totally gone in, in the blink of an eye. She didn't know what to do. She didn't know how to handle it. And she says in her testimony that God had put her in a place, in a hole so deep, that there was nowhere that she could look but up at God. And you know, God many times does that for us. He gives us a problem that is so big that the only place that we can run is to Him. But many times, what do we do? We run away from Him. We, we do what the disciples did. We run in a sense, to ourselves. And they flunked the test that day. Many times we, we pull out the credit card and we go more in debt and we don't go to God with the problem. Or we try to use our problem-solving skills or our conversational skills without depending on God or we end up trusting our own wisdom instead of our faith in Him. And like the disciples, we can end up standing there not knowing what to do. But look at, look at verse 10. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in a number of about 5,000. So Jesus tells them, Have the men sit down. And here's the thing that the disciples had going for them. They may have been standing there kind of like, what do we do? I mean, there's 30,000 people out there. We can do nothing. And so they listened to Jesus. And that's what they had going for them that day. They continued to listen to Jesus, to obey him and what he was telling them to do. And you know what? Um, many times we need to do the same thing. Even if we don't know what to do, the thing to do is to continue to obey Christ in what you know he's telling you to do from his word. It, it kind of reminds me of Mary when she was at the wedding at Canaan. She was kind of in charge, and, and they ran out of wine. Remember that, right? Um, what did she tell the servants to do? She looked at them and said, do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. Why? Because she was trusting in Christ. She was no longer trusting in herself. So they listened to Jesus. And at the, you know, at this point in the story, Jesus could have reminded Andrew, and he could have reminded Philip about the wedding in Cana. He could have asked them whether they remembered how many people were at that celebration. He could have said, do you remember? Do you remember how much wine I made from all those uh, barrels full of water? 
Do you remember that, guys? But they didn't. And Jesus didn't chastise Philip and Andrew for their small faith. He gave them time to think about all that was going on that day and all that was going to go on later on and all that had happened before. He allowed them time for their faith to catch up with what they were experiencing. And many times, we need to do the same thing. We need, you know, a lot of times we know what's going on, but it hasn't gone from here yet to the heart. And many times we need to allow that in other people's lives, you know? Being patient with others um, who aren't in the same place that we are at that point. It's especially our kids. You know, many times we expect our kids to be where we're at, and we need to be patient with them, just like Christ was patient with his disciples. Look at verses 11 through 14. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up, filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So at this point, Jesus miraculously multiplies the five loaves and the two fish so that it feeds all the people. And notice that the people don't get a little bit of bread, but they get an abundance, and they are full, completely full. And then, amazingly enough, there's 12 baskets left over. Jesus provides over and abundantly all that they ask and think. He does not provide out of his riches, but he provides according to his riches. Now, now think about this. How did all these people know that this was a miracle? You know, it says in verse 14, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So how did they know? I mean, 30,000 people? That's a large crowd. Remember the stage at, at Celebrate Anderson? That'd be hard to see, right? If you were in the back, how, how did they see that? Now, either Jesus said he was going to do this, and it's not mentioned here, or, or the crowd could have heard the conversation between the disciples and Jesus. You know, the front of the crowd, and then it got spread throughout the whole crowd, that they only had, you know, two fish and five loaves of bread. That was it. You know, it could have spread through the crowd, hey, we're not going to eat tonight. You know, we might as well get ready to go home because there's only, you know, five loaves, two fish. But then they start seeing food pass all over the place, right? And then they start eating and they start getting full. And then they start seeing baskets go around to get all the leftovers. And they see from all of that that a miracle has happened. And then they draw from that that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the Messiah. 
However the crowd found this out, verse 14 plainly states that they understood that a miracle had happened and that Jesus was the Messiah. But here's where the problem begins. Because this crowd didn't understand what the Messiah was there to do. You know, they were thinking earthly kingdom. And he was, Jesus was thinking heavenly kingdom. They were thinking about their own happiness. They were thinking about their contentment. They were thinking about their safety. They were probably thinking that Jesus could fulfill all this by becoming their king. He could heal all of their diseases. Just think of that. He could provide food for them, even during a famine. He could provide safety by defeating the Romans and driving them out of Israel. This is what their thoughts were about the Messiah. But here's what they missed. Here's what they missed. That their thoughts and their plans were idolatrous. Because they wanted their plans to happen instead of bowing the knee God's plan. They were trying to find their happiness, their prosperity in their own way instead of trusting in God to provide for them in his way. One writer said this, men and women find their spirit, real spiritual prosperity in God. We cannot find it on a human level. We cannot find the abundant life by indulging ourselves in all that life has to offer. We cannot find happiness by pursuing it we cannot create satisfaction. These great blessings come from God. So we must feed on God as he is presented to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The crowd was missing the point of why Jesus did this miracle. And the crowd was starving to death spiritually and didn't even know it. And that's why later on Jesus says this in John 6.35. He says, I and the bread of life, he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. They needed the bread of life. But many times, we act just like this crowd. By trying to find our spiritual prosperity in everything other than God. You know, we supply, we try to supply our needs like Philip did. And then all we can receive spiritually then is little or nothing. But when we trust in Christ to provide our needs, he provides them over and abundantly. He provides for us according to his riches and not out of his riches. What, what does that mean? Think about that. Do you know what that means? It, it's, it's like a multi-billionaire, if he gives out of his riches to you, if he gives you 20 bucks, he might be thinking he's being, he's being generous. You know, that's giving out of his riches. But if a multi-billionaire gives according to his riches, then he can give you a million dollars and do it gladly and not even worry about it. That's how God provides for us. He provides for us over and abundantly. Listen to what one writer says. This is what Jesus does to all his people. He comes to poor, bankrupt believers and placing in his hand a bank draft on the resources of heaven, says to him, write on it what thou will. Such is our precious Lord still. If we are poor, if we are weak, 
or tried or tempted. It's not that we cannot help ourselves. It's because we do not help ourselves. We have so little faith in the things unseen and eternal. We draw so little on the resources of Christ. We come not to him with our spiritual wants or our empty vessels to draw from his ocean of grace. So where are you in all of this? Are you running from God like Jonah did? Remember Jonah, he, he was thinking about his own happiness. He's thinking, I don't want to preach to the Ninevites, so I'm going to do it my way, and I'm going to go the opposite direction. He thought that would make him happy, and it didn't. He thought he was in control, but God showed him who was in control, right? Maybe you've um, been tempted at home or at work and are trying to face the temptation on your own. Maybe instead of providing for yourself, you need to go to the one who is the bread of life, who can provide for you. He said in Hebrews 4.15 that he will give you grace and mercy in your time of need. And in 1 Corinthians 10.13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man, and God will provide a way of escape when you face those temptations. Maybe you feel all alone in this world. You know, even though there's a room full of people here today, you could have lost a friend, a relative, a spouse, and you feel like there's no one you can turn to. And just like Philip, all human resources have failed. That's when we need to run to Christ and Christ alone. We need to know that He will never leave us he will never forsake us. You know, it says in the Old Testament, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You know, many times we read this and we think this is here just to tell the disciples, you know, when you're doing ministry and you run out of food, you know, I'm the one to turn to. That's not it. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. It means that we need to trust him in everything pertaining to life. A, a couple of weeks ago, I, I told you a little girl got up to quote Psalm 23, and she, you know, misquoted it. But she misquoted it in a wonderful way. She said, the Lord is my shepherd, and that's all I want. You know, you think about that. That's this passage of scripture. That's all we need. That's all we need. In closing, if you remember the life of Jacob, Jacob had a tough life. You know, Jacob had a tough life. His, his name even meant deceiver, right? So it, it started out tough for him, right? And near the end of his life, he was probably very discouraged and possibly even depressed. If you remember what was going on years before this, his brother, I mean his son Joseph, was sold into slavery, right? But he was told that his son was eaten by wild animals, by, his, by the brothers, right? And then after that, 
near the end of his life, there's a famine in the land, so his ten sons have to go down to Egypt to buy food. And he keeps the youngest son, Benjamin, at his side. He will not let him go. He has to control him. That is his happiness. That is the only thing that will provide happiness now. He said, I cannot lose another son. So he holds on to Benjamin with all of his strength. So the sons come back from Egypt, and you remember the story. What do they do? Simeon is left behind. And they tell their father, Jacob, we cannot go back unless we take Benjamin. And what does Jacob do? He like loses it. He like loses it. He's, he's probably thinking the whole world is caving in on him now. You know, everything's against him. He's probably thinking, what are you doing, God? What are you doing? I've lost my son, Joseph. Now I've lost Simeon. And they want me to send Benjamin down there? No way. I'm not going to do it. So what does he do? He refuses. Why? Because that's his happiness. He's controlling his life, and that's his happiness. And guess what happens? God changes the circumstances, doesn't he? And what happens is they start running out of food. And so finally, he says, i got to send him down there or we'll starve to death. So he sends him. And at that point, it, usually it happens in my life too, probably happens in yours. You know, usually when I go like this to God and finally say, I'm giving up control of something, that's when he answers prayer. That's when things start happening. And that's what happened with Jacob. Because what happens? Right away, he finds out, Joseph is alive. He's second under Pharaoh. He's got houses down there waiting for us. He's got land for us in Goshen, right? Everything's ready to be provided. And all it was, was he had to let go and trust God and trust God. You know, you may be in the same place today like Jacob was. You may be doubting like Philip and Andrew did, thinking that any situation can shorten the arm of the Lord. Trust Him and know that He can provide over and abundantly all that we ask and think. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for this story that tells us that you are the bread of life and that you are our all in all. Father, help us to be dependent upon you for everything. Help us to look to you by faith in everything. Father, help us not to turn and run from you, especially when the trials come, because they're meant us to grow and to grow closer to you. Lord, we thank you for this day. We pray that we will leave here and grow closer and more like you every day. For we pray